Hello everyone, my beautiful people. This is your one and only host all the way from Bloemfontein in the free state. Um, remember I promised you um, a podcast on the late Tony Morrison. So today is the day and uh, I hope that you guys stick around for the rest of the show and that you enjoy what I have to share with you. You don't necessarily have to, you know, like it and give it a 10 out of 10, but give it a listen and, you know, just let your soul or your spirit be entertained. So today we are going to be sharing um, uh, work from the late Toni Morrison. Uh, I'm going to be sharing uh, work from her first novel entitled The Bluest Eyes. It was published in 1970 and I hope that you really enjoy it. So Miss Toni Morrison, original name, I did not know this, my gosh. Uh, original name Chloe Anthony Wofford was born in February 18, 1931 at Lorraine, Ohio in the United States. Uh, she died in August the 5th, 2019 at Bronx, New York. Uh, she was an American writer noted for her examination of black experience, particularly black female experience within the black community. She received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1993. Uh, among her many awards, which also include the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which she received in 2012, Coretta Scott King Award in 2005, uh, Pulitzer Prize in 1988, and a National Book Critics Circle Award 1977. This is very impressive. One can only wish to reach such uh, status. Uh, her movement or style um, was black arts movement. Um, so yes, guys, today is that day. You can also check out one. You can also check out some of her novels, including Beloved, which was published in 1987, Song of Solomon. 1977, Sula, 1973, Home, 2012, and Jazz, 1992. Um, one of my favorite quotes by Miss Morrison is, if there is a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, you must be the one to write it. Isn't that sort of like a calling to all writers uh, to all writers, to all poets, you know, that they should stand up because there is no one, no one who will create a civilization that we want other than writers and poets. So this is a calling for us to stand up, to answer that calling and to deliver what is required of us so yes my beautiful people without further ado we're gonna get right into it so stick around my lovelies her mother was a tunnel the womb of the earth used to conceive her she was a star, 
an entire universal neuron throbbing in the fragile workings of muscles and bones. She danced in her mother's tummy, dancing to the tune of her birth. She will be more than her eyes, her father said. She will be sunsets and sunrises, the stars and the moonlight, the ocean waves and the esoteric picturesque. She will be a flower piercing through cement. Her wonder, her mystery, her mystique, her entire being that requires comprehension without compensation, confidence without complacency, will lay in the existence of God himself. She will be more than the heaving of her chest, more than her graceful walk. Her halo will blind and her hello will make spirits unwind. Atakuwa roho, atakuwa moto na maji, atakuwa upanga mkali, atakuwa pumzi ya mungu, yeye atakuwa mungu wa kike, atakuwa kwa utukufu, taji yake itakuwa halo ya nyota. Her crown will be of beauty instead of ashes, made of stars, intricately entwined with her immaculate ways. She will be reborn in pages where a pen drips its ink, in pages where her name is mentioned. I am Daoleng Labani, and I am a poet. I love the way your legs brush against mine in the morning. And I love waking up late at night to brush my fingers down your face. But I no longer know if you are the one I wish to brush legs with in the morning. Or if it's your face I wish to brush my fingers down so early in the morning. Whether I stay or go, Please don't forget how ardently I have loved you. And please don't push me out and never let me back in. I feel so selfish to leave you, but to need you to stay hooked on my chain. But I will never know if I don't leave. And I will never leave if I know I'll never get you back. The Bluest Eyes Nuns go by as quiet as lust, and drunken men and sober eyes sing in the lobby of the Greek hotel. Rosemary Villanucci, our next-door friend who lives above her father's cafe, sits in a 1939 Buick eating bread and butter. She rolls down the window to tell my sister Frida and me that we can't come in. We stare at her, wanting her bread but more than that, wanting to poke the arrogance out of her eyes and smash the pride of ownership that curls her chewy mouth when she comes out of the car, we will beat her up, make red marks on her white skin, and she will cry and ask us, do we want her to pull her pants down? We will say no. We don't know what we should feel or do if she does, but whenever she asks us, We know she's offering us something precious and that our own pride must be asserted by refusing to accept. School has started and Frida and I get new brown stockings and cod liver oil. Grown-ups talk in tired, edgy voices about Zix Coal Company and take us along in 
the evening to the railroad tracks where we fill burlap sacks with the tiny pieces of coal lying about. Later, we walk home, glancing back to see the great carloads of slag being dumped, red hot and smoking, into the raven that skirts the steel mill. The dying fire lights the sky with a dull orange glow. Frida and I lag behind, staring at the patch of color surrounded by black. It is impossible not to feel a shiver when our feet leave the gravel path and sink into the dead grass in the field. Our house is old, cold, and green. At night, a kerosene lamp lights one large room. The others are braced in darkness, peopled by roaches and mice. Adults do not talk to us. They give us directions. They issue orders without providing information. When we trip and fall down, they glance at us. If we cut or bruise ourselves, they ask us, are we crazy? When we catch colds, they shake their heads in disgust at our lack of consideration. How, they ask us, do you expect anybody to get anything done if you all are sick? We cannot answer them. Our illness is treated with contempt, foul black drought, and castor oil that blunts our minds. When, on a day after a trip to collect coal, I cough once, loudly, through bronchial tubes already packed tight with phlegm, and my mother frowns. Great Jesus, get on in that bed. How many times do I have to tell you to wear something on your head? You must be the biggest fool in this town, Frida. Get some rags and stuff that window. Frida restuffs the window. I trudge off to bed, full of guilt and self-pity. I lie down in my underwear. The metal in my black garters hurts my legs, but I do not take them off, for it is too cold to lie stockingless. It takes a long time for my body to heat its place in the bed. Once I have generated a silhouette of warmth, I dare not move, for there is a cold place one half inch in any direction. No one speaks to me or asks how I feel. In an hour or two, my mother comes. Her hands are large and rough, and when she rubs the Vic salve on my chest, I am rigid with pain. She takes two fingers full of it at a time, and massages my chest until I am faint. Just when I think I will tip over into a screen, she scoops out a little of the salve on her forefinger and puts it in my mouth, telling me to swallow. A hot flannel is wrapped around my neck and chest. I'm covered up with a heavy kilt and ordered to sweat, which I do promptly. Later, I throw up and my mother says, what did you puke on the bed clothes for? Didn't you have sense enough to hold your head out of bed? Now look what you did. You think I got time for nothing but washing up your puke? The puke swaddles down the pillow onto the sheet, green gray with flecks of orange. It moves like the insides of an uncooked egg, stubbornly clinging to its own mass, refusing to break up and be removed. How, I wonder, can it be so neat and nasty at the same time? My mother's voice drones on. She's not talking to me. She's talking to the puke, but she's calling it my name, Claudia. She wipes it up as best as she can and puts a scratchy towel over the large wet place. I lie down again. 
The rags have fallen from the window crack, and the air is cold. I dare not call her back, and am reluctant to leave my warmth. My mother's anger humiliates me. Her words chafe my cheeks, and I am crying. I do not know that she is not angry at me, but at my sickness. I believe she despises my weakness for letting the sickness take hold. By and by, I will not get sick. I will refuse to, but for now, I am crying. I know I'm making more snot, but I can't stop. My sister comes in. Her eyes are full of sorrow. She sings to me. When the deep purple falls over sleepy garden walls, someone thinks of me. I doze, thinking of plums, walls, and someone. But was it really like that? As painful as I remember, only mildly, or rather it was a productive and fructifying pain. Love, thick and dark as alaga syrup, eased up into that cracked window. I could smell it, taste it, sweet, musty, with an edge of winter green in its base. Everywhere in that house, it stuck along with my tongue to the frosted window panes it coated my chest along with the salve and when the flannel came undone in my sleep the clear sharp curves of air outlined its presence on my throat and in the night when my coffin was dry and tough feet padded into the room hands repinned the flannel readjusted the quilt and rested a moment on my forehead so when i think of autumn I think of somebody with hands who does not want me to die. It was autumn too when Mr. Henry came. Our rumor, our rumor, the words ballooned from the lips and hovered about our heads, silent, separate, and pleasantly mysterious. My mother was all ease and satisfaction in discussing his coming. You know him, she said to her friends, Henry Washington. He's been living over there with Miss Della Jones on 13th Street, but she's too addled now to keep up, so he's looking for another place. Oh, yes. Her friends do not hide their curiosity. I've been wondering how long he was going to stay up there with her. They say she's real bad off. Don't know who he is half the time and nobody else. Well, that old crazy nigger she married up with didn't help her head none. Did you hear what he told folks when he left her? Uh-uh, what? Well, he ran off with that trifling Peggy from Olivia, you know. One of the old sack Bessie's girls? That's the one. Well, somebody asked him why he left a nice good church woman like Della for that Hyther. You know, Della always did keep a good house. And he said he, the honest to God, real reason was he couldn't take no more of that violent water Della Jones used. Said he wanted a woman to smell like a woman. Said Della was just too clean for him. Old dog, ain't that nasty? You telling me? What kind of reasoning is that? No kind. Some men just dogs. Is that what give her them strokes? Must have helped. But you know, none of them girls wasn't too bright. Remember that grinning Hattie? She was never right. And their Auntie Julia is still trotting up and down 16th Street talking to herself. Didn't she put, get put away? Nah, County wouldn't take her. Said she wasn't harming anybody. Well, she's harming me. 
You want something to scare the living shit out of you? You get up 5.30 in the morning like I do and see that old hag floating by in that bonnet. Have mercy. <laughs> they laugh. Frida and I are washing mason jars. We do not hear their words, but with grown-ups we listen to and watch out for their voices. Well, I hope that nobody let me roam around like that when I get senile. It's a shame. What are they going to do about Della? Don't she have no people? A sister's coming up from North Carolina to look after her. I expect she wants to get a hold of Della's house. Oh, come on, that's evil thought, if ever I heard one. What do you want to bet? Henry Washington said that sister ain't seen Della in 15 years. I kind of thought Henry would marry her one of these days. That old woman? Well, Henry ain't no chicken. No, but he ain't no buzzard either. He ever been married to anybody? No. Come, how come? Somebody cut it off? He's just picky. He ain't picky. You see anything around here, you'd marry. Well, no. He's just sensible. A steady worker with quiet ways. I hope it works out all right. It will. How much you charging? Five dollars every two weeks? There'll be a big help to you, I'll say. Their conversation is like a gently wicked dance. Sound meets sound, curtsies, shimmies and retires. Another sound enters, but it is upstaged by still another. The two circle each other and stop. Sometimes their words move in lofty spirals. Other times they take strident leaps. And all of it is punctuated with warm pulse laughter, like the throb of a heart made of jelly. The edge, the curl, the throb of a heart made of jelly. The thrust of their emotions is always clear to Frida and me. We do not, cannot know the meanings of all their words, for we are nine and ten years old. So we watch their faces, their hands, their feet, and listen for truth in timber. So... When Mr. Henry arrived on a Saturday night, we smelled him. He smelled wonderful, like trees and lemon, vanishing cream and new Nile hair oil and flecks of sensin. He smiled a lot, throwing, showing small, even teeth with a friendly gap in the middle. Frida and I were not introduced to him, merely pointed out, like, here is the bathroom, the clothes closet is here, and these are my kids, Frida and Claudia, watch out for the window, it don't open all the way. We looked sideways at him, saying nothing and expecting him to say nothing, just to nod, as he had done at the clothes closet, acknowledging our existence. To our surprise, he spoke to us. Hello there. You must be Greta Garbo, and you must be Ginger Rogers. We giggled. Even my father was stuttered into a smile. Want a penny? He held out a shiny coin to us. Frida lowered her head, too pleased to answer. I reached for it. He snapped his thumb and forefinger, and the penny disappeared. Our shock was laced with delight. We searched all over him, poking our fingers into his socks, looking at the inside back of his coat. If happiness is anticipation with certainty, we were happy. And while we waited for the coin to reappear, we knew we were amusing Mama and Daddy. Daddy was smiling and Mama's eyes went soft as they followed our hands, wandering over Mr. Henry's body. We loved him, even after what came later. There was no bitterness in our memory of him. She slept in the bed with us, Frida on the outside because she's brave. It never occurs to her that if in her sleep her hand hangs over the edge of the bed, something will crawl out from under it and bite her fingers off. 
I slept near the wall because that thought has occurred to me. Pecola, therefore, had to sleep in the middle. Mama had told us two days earlier that a case was coming, a girl who had no place to go. The country had placed her in our house for a few days until they could decide what to do, or more precisely, until the family was reunited. We were to be nice to her and not fight. Mama didn't know what got into people, but that old dog breed love had burned up his house, gone upside his wife's head, and everybody, as a result, was outdoors. Outdoors, we knew, was the real terror of life. Oh, the threat of being outdoors surfaced frequently in those days. Every possibility of excess was curtailed with it. If somebody ate too much, he could end up outdoors. If somebody used too much coal, he could end up outdoors. People could gamble themselves outdoors, drink themselves outdoors. Sometimes mothers put their sons outdoors. And when that happened, regardless of what the son had done or sympathy was with him, he was outdoors and his own flesh had done it. To be put outdoors by a landlord was one thing, unfortunate, but an aspect of life over which you had no control since you could not control your income. But to be slack enough to put, be put outdoors by your mother, now that was one thing. Or heartless enough to be put, um, put one's own kin outdoors, that was criminal. There is a difference between being put out and being put outdoors. If you are put out, you go somewhere else. If you are outdoors, there is no place to go. The distinction was subtle but final. Outdoors was the end of something, an irrevocable physical fact defining and complementing our metaphysical condition. Being a minority in both case and class, we moved about anyway on the hem of life, struggling to consolidate our weaknesses and hang on or to creep singly up into the major folds of the garment. Our peripheral existence, however, was something we had learned to deal with, probably because it was abstract, but the concreteness of being outdoors was another matter, like the different the difference between the concept of death and being. In fact, dead. Dead doesn't change, and outdoors is here to stay. Knowing that there was such a thing as outdoors bred in us a hunger for property, for ownership. The firm possession of a yard, a Porsche, a grape arbor, property black people spent all their energies, all their love on their nests, like like frenzied, desperate birds. They over-decorated everything, fussed and fidgeted over their hard-worn homes, canned, jellied, and preserved all summer to fill the cupboards and shelves. They painted, picked, and poked at every corner of their houses. And these houses loomed like hothouse sunflowers among the rows of weeds that were rented houses, renting black cast furtive glances at these old yards and porches and made firmer commitments to buy themselves some nice little old place. In the meantime, they saved and scratched and piled away what they could in the rented hovels, looking forward to the day of property. Surely Breedlove then, a renting black, having put his family outdoors, had catapulted himself beyond the reaches of human consideration. He had joined the animals, was indeed an old dog, a snake, a ratty nigger. Mrs. Breedlove was staying with the woman who worked for the boy Sammy with, with some other family and Pecola was to stay with us. 
Charlie was in jail. She came with nothing. No little paper bag with the other dress or an art gown or two pair of whitish cotton bloomers. She just appeared with a white woman and sat down. We had fun in those few days. Piccola was with us. Frida and I stopped fighting each other and concentrated on our guest, trying hard to keep her from feeling outdoors. When we discovered that she clearly did not want to dominate us, we liked her. She laughed when I clowned for her and smiled and accepted gracefully the food gifts my sister gave her. Would you like some graham crackers? I don't care. Frida bought her four graham crackers on a saucer and some milk in a blue and white Shirley Temple cup. She was a long time with the milk and gazed fondly at the silhouette of Shirley Temple's dimple face. Frida and she had a loving conversation about how cute Shirley Temple was. I couldn't join them in their adoration because I hated Shirley. Not because she was not because she was cute, but because she danced with Bojangles, who was my friend, my uncle, my daddy, and who ought to have been soft shooing it and chuckling with me. Instead, he was enjoying, sharing, giving a lovely dance thing with one of those slow white girls whose socks never slid down under their heels. So I said, I like Jane Weathers. They gave me a puzzled look, decided I was incomprehensible and continued their reminiscing about old squint-eyed Shirley. Younger than both Frida and Piccola, I had not yet arrived at the turning point in the development of my psyche which would allow me to love her. What I felt at that time was unsullied hatred, but before that I had, I had, I had felt a stranger, more frightening thing than hatred for all the Shirley temples of the world. It had begun with Christmas and the gift doors. The big, the special, the loving gift was always a big blue eye baby doll. From the clucking sounds of adults, I knew that the doll was represented what they thought was my fondest wish. I was bemused with the thing itself, the way it looked. What was I supposed to do with it? Pretend it I was its mother. I had no interest in babies or the concept of motherhood. I was interested only in humans, my own age and size, and could not generate any enthusiasm at the prospect of being a mother. Motherhood was old age and other remote possibilities. I learned quickly, however, what I was expected to do with the doll. Rocket, fabricate, storied, situations around it, even sleep with it, picture books were full of little girls sleeping with their dolls, raggedy and dolls usually, but they were out of the question. I was physically revolted by and secretly frightened of those round moronic eyes, the pancake face and orange worm's hair. The other dolls, which were supposed to bring me great pleasure, succeeded in doing quite the opposite. When I took it to bed, its hard, unyielding limbs resisted my flesh. The tapered fingertips on those dimpled hands scratched. If in sleep I turned, the bone-cold head collided with my own. It was a most uncomfortable, patently aggressive sleeping companion. To hold it was no more rewarding. The starched gauze or lace of the cotton dress irritated and embraced. I had only one desire, to dismember it, to see of what it was made, to discover the dearness, to find the beauty, the desirability that had escaped me, but apparently only me. Adults, all the girls, shops, magazines, newspapers, window signs, all the world had agreed that a blue-eyed, yellow-haired, pink-skinned doll was what every girl treasured. Here, they said, this is beautiful, and if you are on this day worthy, 
you may have it. I fingered the face, wondered at the single stroke eyeballs, picked at the pearly teeth stuck like two piano keys between bowline lips, traced and turned up nose, poked the glossy blue eyeballs, twisted the yellow hair. I could not love it, but I could examine it to see what it was that all the walls said was lovable. Break off the tiny fingers, bend the flat feet, loosen the hair, twist the head around, and the thin made one sound. The sound they said was the sweet and plaintive cry, Mama! But which sounded to me like the bleat of a dying lamb, or more precisely, our icebox door opening on rusty hinges in July. Remove the cold and stupid eyeballs, it will bleed still. Ah! Take off the head, shake out the sawdust, crack the back against the breast bed rail, it would bleed still. The gauze back would split and I could see the disc of six holes, the secret of the sound, a mere metal roundness. Grown people frown and fuss. You don't know how to take care of nothing. I never had a baby doll in my whole life and used to cry my eyes off of them. Now you got one, a beautiful one, and you tear it up. What's the matter with you? How strong was their courage? Tears threatened to erase the aloofness in their authority, the emotion of years of unfulfilled longing preened in their voices. I did not know why I destroyed these dolls, but I did not. I did know that nobody ever asked me what I wanted for Christmas. Had any adult with the power to fulfill my desires taken me seriously and asked me what I wanted, they would have known that I did not want to have anything to own or to possess any object. I wanted rather to feel. To feel something on Christmas Day. Ooh, I hope you enjoyed that book reading. Um, I just read one chapter for you guys from The Bluest Eyes by Toni Morrison. It is really an interesting book. So I hope you get yourself a copy and continue from where we finished off or you can still read the whole thing by yourself it is really up to you but i am glad that you guys joined me um on this podcast and i hope that you enjoyed it and yeah we are going to end things off with just one poem by your one and only girl that is me me (laughs) of course i hope you enjoy the poem other than that goodbye my lovelies she wove me into existence she did it so immaculately and intimately that it felt sacred It felt wrong to stay, but it was so beautiful. My mother wove me into existence. Little did she know she was bringing her dream into existence. In those steady hands, there was magic. In that fragile heart, there was faith. My mother wove me into existence. Her mother's mother had taught her how to do it. You pull the wool through this hoop, and you add more wool till your creation is complete. Now this is not an easy job and it requires patience. Sometimes you will get it right, sometimes you will get it wrong, but it's okay. As long as you have wool, you will get it. She taught her how to make blankets. 
But one day my mother found herself making a child, an extension of her sober dreams she just didn't know. She was just a hopeful woman. She started with black, added a little blue, a little yellow, a little pink, a little white, a little brown, a little green, and a whole lot of happy, maybe a little too much of her heart. You could see the light in her eyes grow brighter and brighter as she wove steadily and with much patience. The light grew brighter and brighter as she neared completion, but the wool ran out. The light grew tired. Her fingers were hurting, her feet were swollen, her back ached, her heart grew distant because she couldn't finish. She didn't have enough money to buy more wool, so her project lay there for completion. Days went by, months, years, until she forgot and all the colors of her creation went gray. My mother forgot to weave me. She didn't have enough money for wool. Wool became costly and she became tired every cent she had. She spent on that wool but she just couldn't finish until she learned that it was not her task to finish. She had started. She needed only to love her creation as incomplete as it is and it was 